Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I will review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication and this week I continue my examination of The Outsider uh, in which I examine episodes two and three. Um, okay, so I do apologize, guys. I have been meaning to get an episode out. I thought for sure I was going to be able to cover episode three, uh, and then episode four came out. So I, um, what I'm going to be doing today, rather than doing a, a deep dive into both of these episodes, I am going to um, really just sort of give my general thoughts on on both of these episodes. And first, I'm going to start off with the fact that I fully acknowledge that I have forgotten to talk about Lock and Key, which is right around the corner. It comes out next week, guys. That's a big deal. Lock and Key on Netflix. I really like uh, this trailer that was released. I think it's a lot of fun. It looks like a mashup of 80s Amblin movies meets Harry Potter. There's a, a whimsical feel to it. Uh, there's definitely magic in the air. There is a sense of adventure and danger uh, and excitement um, and, and, and everything that I, I would want from it in a way that I wouldn't have expected it or, or knew that I wanted, it is there. So... Um, I don't know if I'm going to be able to review. I've said before that I will review. I don't know if I'm going to be able to go in depth. Um, if I can't keep up with uh, The Outsider, I cannot promise that I'll be able to uh, give you all of my thoughts on Lock and Key when it comes out. But at some point, I will get to all of my thoughts on it, my general thoughts on Lock and Key. Um, so what I'm going to do now, I'm going to read some iTunes reviews because I cannot do this without you guys. So up first, I have um, someone, uh, not a podcaster, wrote five stars, nothing better. There's nothing better than finishing a King book and then coming here and listening to the corresponding episode. And then, thank you. <laughs> thank you, not a podcaster. And then Kryptonian Orphan, which is an awesome name. Uh, gave me five stars and uh, rated it by saying, I enjoy this podcast almost as much as I love reading Stephen King's stories. Great, great podcast, fantastic host. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And guys, if you have any spare time on your hands, feel free to write in at iTunes. It will give me um, a huge boost and will help me out greatly. Also, if you have some time on your hands, feel free to write in uh, to Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com. Um, I'm going to le- uh, read some, <laughs> it sounded like Porky Pig there, I'm going to read some listener emails right now. Up first we have Jake who writes, I'm a huge fan of Joe Hill. I have yet to read Joe Hill's contributions to DC, but I believe he is doing more. I started reading his work when Lock and Key was still releasing regularly. That was before I knew he was Stephen King's son. Then I read Throttle by Him and His Father, and I found a new love for Stephen King all over again. Also, did you watch Creepshow on Shudder? I'm going to interject. No, I haven't had a chance to, to watch that yet, but I'm going to hopefully get around to Shudder because there's a lot of good stuff on there. Sorry to go on and on, but I was also wondering if you read any more of Owen King's. I have not. He has some comics background as well as an adaptation of his and his father's work, Sleeping Beauties, coming in February. Anyways, thank you so much for the response. My wife is not much of a horror fan. Any chance I can ramble on and on about my love for the King family and horror in general. I'm working on getting both of my kids into it. My daughter loves The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon pop-up book. Thank you again for all that I do. Uh, Jake, thank you so much for writing in uh, and keep your love of horror going uh, through your children. That's fantastic. 
Dear Constant Reader, I'm just finishing up the top 10 works of Stephen King of the past decade episode. Such retrospectives often make me reflect back on my own personal experiences with King. I've been a constant reader of King since about the age of 16. I'm now 31, so just about half of my life I've been obsessing over his works. I always knew the name Stephen King, even as a child. It was probably due to my dad's love of the Salem's Lot and Carrie adaptations. Also, I recall a greater respect for King's work spiking with the release and subsequent countless airings of The Shawshank Redemption on cable. I would occasionally see the adaptations of his other work on TV. Some of them were great, Stand By Me, and some of them were not so great, The Langoliers. While I was always a reader of books, I did not gravitate towards King's written work right away. This may be due to my having a resistance to reading books, oh, a book if I've already seen the adaptation. When I was younger, I was ignorant of just how prolific King was with his writing. Growing up, my family and I would often go to shore in New Jersey for vacation. I would love these trips as a child, but of course, as I grew older, I would dread them with the typical uh, teenage cynicism. I will always remember the day I strolled into a beachside bookshop looking for any excuse to have just some time to myself. During my search, I came across an entire bookcase dedicated to Stephen King. I saw the usual suspects of King's bibliography, but there was a book I had never heard of called Eyes of the Dragon. Looking like an easy summer read, I paid for the paperback and retreated to the air-conditioned house we were renting. Over the next few days, I devoured the book. King blew my mind, showing me different perspectives of the characters in the book, including the antagonists. Shortly thereafter, I learned many of King's works were connected to and some characters crossed over to the other books. I followed Flag into the Dark Tower books and then, of course, became a Tower junkie. I read all the Dark Tower books in quick succession, along with many other Dark Tower-adjacent books that shared similar themes. Similar to how you explained your relationship with King, my fandom certainly went through ebbs and flows. I would discover other writers, other books that drew my attention, but time and time again I would find myself coming back to King if he had just written a new book that sounded exciting. During one stretch of ignited interest in King, I found your podcast, which had probably been running for a year at that point. Just like getting hooked to the books themselves, I became totally enthralled in listening to the episodes of the books that I had already read. Your analysis was always thought-provoking and enjoyable. It also felt gratifying listening to a fellow Dark Tower fan discussing the series, as well as the Easter eggs to the series and other books. While everyone was familiar with a lot of King's works, for a long time the Dark Tower felt like a secret world that not everyone was privy to. And a lot of people that had heard of it didn't quite gravitate towards the strange melding of fantasy, horror, and western themes. I recall during one podcast you had remarked that it had been one of your favorite books. As unfair as it may be since the mediums are totally different, I still hesitate to read a book if I had already seen the adaptation. However, with your praise of the book as well as news that a new adaptation was in the works, I went ahead and downloaded the mammoth text on my Kindle. Over the next few weeks, I got lost in the haunted city of Derry. I fell in love with the Losers Club. I felt like I was 12 years old again, hanging out with my friends in the Crick, Delaware uh, County PA's version of the Barons, out back of my house. I was terrified of Henry Bowers as well as Pennywise the Dancing Clown. While enjoying my horror books and films, few of them ever really frightened me. On a few different occasions during my reading, I experienced sleep paralysis episodes with Pennywise standing just beside me. Of course, in those moments, it was pretty awful. But after the initial shock, I had to marvel at the writing and the world-building King had put into the book. I agree with you that this book serves as a sort of essay and maybe King's final say on the horror genre, and I thank you for recommending it so highly. 
Apologies for the insanely long-winded email. Finishing up, I just wanted to say thank you for putting out such an incredible podcast for so long. I admire your work ethic as you are able to read these books very quickly and also report record podcasts with such detailed analysis. I'm in the midst of completing the first draft of a novel, and you certainly are an inspiration to me with the sheer amount of quality content you have produced. The Stephen King cast is, and I suspect will always be, my favorite podcast. It was very easy. Um, it was a very easy five-star review to write on the Apple Podcast app. Thank you. I hope you and your family have a very happy and healthy new year. Long days and pleasant nights, John. John, that's an incredible email. Thank you so much, and thank you for the, the five-star review. Um, and I'm, I'm really glad that, that you were able to, you know, experience the, the wonder of it. Um, and congratulations on, on uh, you know, working on your uh, first draft. You know, that is the, just doing the work is, is the hardest part. So just get it done. Get it done and, um, you know, do as Stephen King says. Put it in a drawer and then go back and then cut 30%. And, you know, if you haven't read On Writing, um, make sure you pick it up because it's a, an incredible resource at your disposal. Knowledge. If I sound distracted right now, it's because I just took a look at my pool. It is currently uh, February 2nd. Um, I've been battling with my tarp, um, and it, it's because my water level has been decreasing, and the reason is I just discovered a leak in my pool, and I have this little pinprick of uh, a hole that is just shooting water out, so I can't get that off of my head. Since getting this house and inheriting this pool, it has just, it wasn't in great condition to begin with, and I've just been struggling with it and as I'm recording I am just contemplating whether or not I get it repaired which will be costly or if I just tear the thing down um, which would be you know, it would suck for summer um, but at the same time it would kind of be uh, some hassle off of my shoulders anyway th that's what I'm going through at the moment Anyway, then Nathan writes, I'd like to thank you for a great decade wrap-up episode. It was comprehensive and emotional. Very well done. As many of your listeners would agree, your podcast is very much a part of our highlight reel of this past decade. I remember when I first saw your podcast in iTunes. I had just finished up reading The Stand for the first time. I had never been a big reader, but the TV miniseries was formative, and I had always meant to read it. In my mid-30s, I suppose it finally hit that I'd better start reading before my time ran out. Midlife crisis much? Yet at this point, you were only a few episodes in, so I made a mental note to circle back round again once you had gotten to the stand in your epic reread. Very shortly after that, you did get to the stand, which gets me to my point. What makes your podcast so incredible is that each episode functions as an appetizer for the meal that is the book being discussed, or is it dessert? Your podcast inspired me to read 900-page books I never would have gotten around to if not for your inspiring, passionate discussion. It has been the victory lap in finishing such doorstoppers. None of it is work, it is all joy. I've read and enjoyed books that you may not have enjoyed, but I knew there was value there, and I've enjoyed books that you've loved, yet have had fallen through the cracks of the popular culture. Digging so deeply into a singular author encourages deep thought and enjoyment of a medium that so easily gets brushed off as IP to be mined for feature films. The books are what matters. Reading is what matters. Stories that reveal ourselves to ourselves are what matters. I suppose a question that could be asked is, why Stephen King? My answer is not because he writes horror. I generally have no interest in it. But I know that the universe is a scary place. So much happens beneath the surface level of reality that is out of our control. 
I think King's characters are forced to confront this lack of control over the chaos of reality and sometimes discover wisdom on the way. In a lot of ways, I also think that King was processing the psychic wounds of the 20th century, both culturally and personally. Born poor, abandoned by his father, losing his mother in young adulthood, then rocketed the um, excessive heights of success, definitely is a mythic journey, practically a superheroic one, and he helped guide generations through their greatest fears because he had already faced them. And he knew and still knows that eventually our, feel, our fears do come true. It's dark, but it's therapeutic and luckily very entertaining. To briefly circle back before I wrap this up, I was absolutely shocked when I read The Stand and fully experienced the terror of Randall Flagg. He was charismatic, manipulative, and always knew what you wanted, but made sure he got what he wanted first. And I realized that this was a very insidious evil. Every bully I've ever witnessed, every villain in history, yet somehow very few villains in fiction suddenly came to this harsh focus. For this reason, I could never reconcile a Stephen King fan ever being supportive of President Trump. He hits every single note of the Randall Flagg archetype. We are living in Flagg's Vegas, or at least the impending threat of such state. I hope we can make a stand and reveal the villain for the pathetic creature he really is. Take care, Nathan. Nathan, thank you for um, writing in for the, the kind words. And yes, um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about King's villains lately, and when they, in the end, when they are... Uh, revealed to be their true selves. Spoiler alert for uh, Needful Things and for The Dark Tower and for It and for uh, The Stand and for um, The Dark Half. Um, yeah, and for most of... And for uh, Under the Dome. I mean, when it comes down to it, all of these powerful creatures are nothing. Uh, spoiler alert for Wizard and Glass, but I mean, there's a reason why uh, the 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 imagery that King presented in Wizard and Glass resonates so strongly. It's because he has been obsessed with the concept of the man behind the curtain for most of his career, and he has exposed most of his villains, the ones that we think of as the most powerful, truly as the the man behind the curtain that when confronted and at the verge of uh, obliteration, the spider, it, the, the, the eater of worlds, begs and pleads and mules for his life. Randall Flagg, the, the big bad of Stephen King's works, always runs away. I mean, make no mistake that when confronted, he runs away. He ran away in The Stand. He ran away in Eyes of the Dragon. Um, he runs away in Wizard and Glass. He uh, is taken out like a punk because he's just a blowhard in the Dark Tower. Uh, Leland Gaunt, again, screams and begs at the end. Uh, all of his characters are nothing. They are revealed to be really just weak and are hiding behind bluster. And that is very applicable to... Um, to a lot of people in power right now and the the fact that there are those in this world that want to believe in the appearance of power that they want to believe in in oz the great and terrible um because that is a sign of strength but you know i i just don't know if they've if these if these people have been able to actually see behind the curtain and for many of us we have seen behind the curtain and, and see uh weak 
uh, weak men. And uh, so, yeah, and I, I think that that's something that King has done very well is, is be able to tell the story of weak men for a long time. I'm going to um, give just some thoughts on episode three about what I like about episode three. Um, so remember that episodes one and two really had that true detective, the night of style. And here in episode three, it starts to shift into a, like a glossy high water mark version of, of like a really good X-Files episode. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but now we start to get into supernatural and we have agents of the law investigating supernatural activity. Um, and it's creepy, you know, that this, you know, episode three and leading into episode four is, you know, where the, the immediate horror of the events that have occurred in episodes one and two, which occurred within reality, um, we, we start to, to leave that and start to really head into like traditional horror creep, you know, creep show, uh, um, creeptastic, you know, spookiness, you know, just think of the barn, everything with, with the barn, you know, the, the, that sense of dread that's there, the, the mist around the barn as, as the sun begins to set, you know, it really does feel like that, that, that moment when, you know, vampires are going to come out. I love when the sun sets at night. Um, there isn't a day that goes by where the sun isn't setting. And I say to myself, Oh, I got to get home before the vampires come out. The, the barn really felt like that. You know, the, the old cemetery being there. Um, it's a wonderful jump scare. There, there's the mouse, you know, and just the sound of, of, of the mouse always, to me, you know, signifies, you know, great, you know, Dracula stories. You know, um, and everything with uh, Terry and, and Glory's child is, it's genuinely creepy. And it shouldn't be. It's just a, a child speaking about her dreams um, in the middle of the day. Um, and it shouldn't be creepy, but it is creepy. It's very creepy. Um, the, the, the director, Andrew Bernstein, of, of I believe he did um, episode uh, four as well, taking the baton from Jason Bateman, he makes a wise choice to frame this particular scene in the day. It presents a level of safety and reality that should make everyone feel at ease, but it swings in the opposite direction. The outsider is now encroaching upon everyone's understanding of reality and threatening to pop the bubble of safety that we have built for ourselves. All right, um, and... I'm going to talk in this moment really um, about two things for the rest of this particular episode because now I'm just going to mix um, episodes three and four together. Um, all right, so just some other thoughts about creepiness. I mean, this continues in episode four with the, um, you know, as, as and I'm going to get to her in a second, but as Holly is investigating the background and the back, uh, the, the other cases that are similar to, to Terry's, um, ultimately getting to El Coco, um, Cuco, I can't remember. Oh my God. Um, but you know, the, the, this legendary folkloric figure that pops up in, in multiple, um, multiple countries and multiple versions of folklore. Um, you know, there, there is a, a real threat lying in the darkness, um, that, that we get beginning in this episode and leading into episode four. And one thing that I just really like is what um, Julianne Nicholson is doing. Julianne Nicholson, who uh, is a Stephen King movie alum, and I forgot to mention this in the last episode, but of course you might remember her from Storm of the Century. So it was great to see her again in another Stephen King property. But she is doing really good work. And she's not just being the grieving wife 
or the grieving widow and the grieving, you know, mother, she um, is going through her own arc and she's trying to hold her family together and she's trying to figure it out. And the work that she's doing is really, really good. And her just working with um, Jeannie um, in these scenes you know, both of them, they have their own agency. Jeannie is trying to help in her own way because she trusts her husband. She's not saying that her husband isn't perfect and didn't make a mistake, but he did it in a way that he, he thought he was doing something right and his mistake caused pain, but she can support the healing process and she's going to. And just having these two women who have un endured loss be with each other and be in the moment it's just really, really well done, as is Glory's um, reaction to the, uh, the the woman that has come in and is really a, a reporter and trying to get a story and just the how intelligent Glory is to, to snuff out and protect her family. It's, it's really good work. And in it's actually one of the highlights of every episode in what is every week um, a highlight of my week. Okay, but I really have to talk about the big deal of episodes three and four, and that is the introduction to um, Cynthia Erivo as Holly Gibney. This is a big deal. Episode, you know, every, things happen in episodes three and four, but this is where we are introduced to Holly Gibney. And this is not the first time we have seen this character presented um, on screen in a live action form. The... The, the, the first actress to, to take this role um, is Justine Lupo of Succession fame. Um, she also plays her on Mr. Mercedes. Um, and this is a different version of Holly. And what an incredible version. So I had wondered in the trailers if Holly was going to be supernatural. And it appears, though, yes. I mean, her her her... In the books, Holly is autistic and observant, and her observation skills um, are, are indicate her as a savant. This is different. This basically, she kind of has The Shining, if you want to read it that way. And I'm fine with that. Uh, you know, this is still a story about people living in the real world, and um, Richard Price has done an amazing job at being able to build the reality of the world that Holly lives in, and it feels real um you know her interactions with everyone and how attuned she is to everything to the point where it's always overwhelming her uh it, it is an interesting take um the actress is doing a phenomenal job with it i like everything about holly you know the the fact that it just completely shifts from um ralph's story basically to holly that's you know, in the span of four episodes, there's a lot of jarring moments. We thought that it was Jason Bateman's story, and then Jason Bateman is killed. And then we think that we're going to follow Ralph. And then in episode three, we are introduced to a, a major figure, Holly. So th this rapid succession of changes in perspective could be enough to alienate the audience. But Richard Price is doing such a good job at creating such a focus within every episode that it allows... Um, this this baton to be passed um, and it is an incredible performance it's a really cool interpretation of this character uh, that I, I, I just really really like it a lot so this is a very slight episode I do apologize 
Um, unfortunately, I just really like this show. It's a really good show. And I'm running out of ways to say it's really good and I like it. <laughs> um, if you're not watching it, please do. Um, there's just, you know, I love Sunday nights because of HBO. They, they rarely... Um, lead me astray and I'm glad that this has joined the the pantheon of all time great uh, 9 o'clock television events on HBO so guys 24 minutes I'm sorry I, I've lightly covered two episodes but they're good episodes um, so um, I don't know what my next episode will be whether it is um, sort of like a check in with the outsider because I don't know if I'll be able to do weekly episodes um you know, or if I'll be able to talk about um, lock and key, but uh, definitely something will be coming soon in the next couple weeks, uh, one way or another. So um, I will definitely see you then. But like I said, if you have a couple minutes on your hands, feel free to head on over to iTunes. Please leave a review. If you have any thoughts on The Outsider, write into Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com. And I will see you here. Uh, may you have long days and pleasant nights. And I'll see you here next time where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King cast.